Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. All right, well, uh, today we are going to be going over chapter 6 in the Westminster Confession of Faith, entitled, Of the Fall of Man, of Sin, and of Punishment Thereof. All right. Is this uh You're taller than I thought. All right. Is the angle better? All right. Well, we'll start off with a word of prayer and then we will get going on this. Um I am excited about this chapter because although it seems pretty straightforward, um it's not so easy for Americans to understand this chapter. So we'll talk about that. And then we'll get going. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for your goodness. We are grateful to you for the means you have chosen to maintain uh, your word and the meaning of it. And we pray that you would give us grace today, that we might be able to understand it well and walk away uh, learning something and knowing something we didn't know before. Lord, we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Okay. Um, Let me read the first one, and then we'll get uh, talking about our introduction to all this. If you look at chapter 6, article 1, it says this. Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned. In eating of the forbidden fruit. This their sin, God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purposed to, uh, to order it to his own glory. And then let's read number two as well. By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the parts and facilities of the soul and body. Okay. Um, So we all understand uh, two concepts, and they have been talked, we've already talked about them, really, uh, even through providence and things like that, as to how God has purposed things that come about And they are by his sovereignty that they come about. And that includes sin, where it came about according to his plan and and according to his sovereignty. He is not the source of sin or did not commit sin. But he has, as it says here, permitted it. And for his own glory. And so we all understand these things a little bit better now that we've had a conversation about them before. Um, the question comes to how, to how do Americans understand sin? And particularly, how do Americans understand Article 3? Which is, uh, they being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed 
and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. In other words, how is it that if Adam and Eve sinned, we are guilty of that sin? Um, so, we uh, as, a, as a nation began with independence, right? If I were to say to you, give me blank or give me death, what would you, what does everyone know? Liberty, right? Give me liberty or give me death, right? And we, uh, you know, and that, he actually may have even said that. We don't know. But, uh, but you know Nathan Hale's last stand and all that sort of thing. And, uh, and we, know, um, we know that we, uh, we did not want taxation without representation. We all know about the Tea Party and all that sort of stuff. And so the very founding of our nation is a, um, is a work of trying to become independent, right? Independence. We even have a day set aside for it. It's called Independence Day. All right. Just in case you guys were like, what day would that be? All right. So uh, we have Independence Day. Independence is very important to us, and this is all... Wonderful. We even know what it means to, uh, to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's right. That we need to be responsible for ourselves. Uh, this is actually, you know, embedded in the Republican uh, ideals. Uh, and, there, and I'm not even, just so you know, I'm not even saying anything bad about this right now, right? Um, this is fine stuff. This is good. Um, you can imagine how uh, this kind of thinking would then start affecting those in their uh, religious states. Okay, so this idea of independence, this idea of being separate from a group that seemed to be um, seemed to be abusing their people through the through the decisions of just one person the king, and what we needed was to disseminate our power so that we don't rely on one person's decision that affects us all, right, the king. And so we have a representative government in which all the representation is supposed to, uh, is to make the power more uh, diverse, okay. So how does this affect Christianity? So we have uh, very early in the American, in the American uh, ideals of people coming over. Uh, here uh, we have the Puritans and we have the Pilgrims and we have all that stuff. And one day, Cotton Mather, uh, one of the uh, Puritans, began to become concerned about how a person came to know God. So the idea was this. As people were coming over, they were coming over from the old world where the parents, right, if they were Christians, would baptize their babies, 
right? And then the babies would grow up to be children, and the children would then eventually take on the faith, right, on their own. Uh, But it was unclear when that moment was. And so what they began to demand out of people in order to to, uh, baptize their babies was a moment where they themselves could say, I remember when I was saved. So they called this a testimony. And so they they started demanding testimonies out of people because they were not satisfied with someone just saying, well, I I believe now. I don't remember when, but I believe now. And they didn't have that testimony. And that testimony was part of deciding how you, as an independent individual, came to know the Lord, and you had to know when the time was. So they didn't know when the time was for many of them, so they had what was called the halfway covenant, where they couldn't be sure if the parents were saved, so they would have this halfway covenant for the children so they could still get baptized, not be barbarians, and just live on their, you know, on their own accord. Uh, and so they had to have some kind of baptism, so they had this halfway covenant, and it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. From this um, type of idea, there was a missionary that eventually came from uh, England who was very upset with the Anglican Church. Because the Anglican Church had all this top-heavy power, and he believed that what you needed was to have house churches. And if you had this house church, and you had whoever was male was able to lead in the house church without very much training, and by very much I mean none. But if you were male, you could be one of the leaders in the house church. This man's name was John Darby. And John Darby ended up coming to America to spread the good news of what he believed was a more independent way of worship. And this independent way of worship meant that you didn't have other churches looking down on you or deciding things for you. You could be your own independent church. And you didn't have a church hierarchy that would decide whether you were called and whether you were qualified to be a pastor. The church itself would decide. And if the congregation said, yes, then you were it. Some people would put their hands on you and they would pray and you were the pastor. And these churches ended up being what was called, uh, um, they started off as community churches um, and it then became very appealing to Baptists. And then that's where eventually what you would get was independent Baptist churches. So the Independent Baptist Church was kind of brought from that, from uh, Schofield, who was very influenced by Darby and his Bible, and all that started taking place. And this is where you get this Independent Baptist Church idea, with independence in even how we come to know the Lord, where we have to have our testimony and say, this is the moment it happened. Now, some people have that, and that's wonderful. But you understand, as Americans, how appealing all that would be when our very inception of the concept of what we are was to separate ourselves from a top-heavy idea, and we can do things ourselves with independence. 
Make sense? And so the idea of one person making decisions for us or a small group making decisions for us and we are literally responsible for that person's decision has gotten very far away from our thinking because we think in independence. We think in individual ideas. As an individual, I came to know the Lord. I gave my testimony, and as an individual, I got baptized. And as an individual, I'm in my congregation. And we are separated from anything else. And we make our decisions, and the pastor then becomes, as an individual, our pastor, who is separated from any other church. And this becomes very tempting to people like us here in America. Our thinking is so strongly uh, steered this way that when someone says we are responsible and guilty because of what Adam did, it sounds very strange to us. One way people have tried to deal with this, who are very uh, steered toward that independent idea, is that Adam sinned in his body, and therefore we are um, responsible because we are related to him through his uh, DNA, um, physically. And so sin goes from body to body, right? And so we are responsible through his generation physically. Well, of course, this is problematic if we start thinking about the fact that Jesus took on a body. Did Jesus take on sin as far as a sinful body? Was Jesus sinful in his body because he had a body? Well, no. Did Jesus have a different kind of body than we had? No. Otherwise, Jesus is not um, a suitable sacrifice for us if he didn't have a real body like our body, okay? So how is it that we are responsible for Adam's sin? This was not a hard concept for people living in England in the 1600s or 1700s uh, because this was the normal way of thinking of how someone who is in a kind of bond with someone else, has immediate responsibility to that person, like a king. Right? This is why someone like um, John, uh, John Knox was so upset at the queen taking mass. Why was John Knox so upset about the queen taking mass? Does anyone know? He was upset. I mean, and she trembled over him. <laughs> she was afraid of John Knox. But the queen would take mass. I mean, isn't that her thing? If she wanted to take mass, that's fine. John Knox didn't have to take mass. She's the queen. What does that mean? Yes. If the queen takes mass, the whole nation takes mass with her. Because she represents them. John Knox understood that how covenantal relationships worked. 
So what has happened with Americans is Americans see covenant uh, as an event instead of as a condition. Do you understand what I mean? So Americans, they're fine talking about covenants because they see them happen. So they saw a covenant with Abraham, and they see that as an event. Isn't that an interesting event? Let's look at what the Bible says about the event of that covenant. And we say, oh, we see conditions for Abraham, and that's great for Abraham. Uh, they get really confused when they get to uh, Galatians and uh, Colossians, where it seems as though there's a direct relationship from that covenant to us. But the point is, people see it as an event. What they don't see is that we are covenantal people, that we are what some people call covenantal beings. Um, and so, when Adam sinned, and let's, uh, if you have your Bibles, let's look at Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, and look at verse 12. It says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So here's the question. This is something that uh, affected, um, I think I've mentioned this before, maybe I have and I can't remember anymore. Um, Jonathan Edwards, does everyone remember Jonathan Edwards? Well, he had a son named Jonathan Edwards Jr. And Jonathan Edwards Jr. Uh, was not a great success. Um, he fell into this theology uh, that believed we were not responsible for Adam's sin. Um, it was called the New Haven Theology uh, because it started with this guy who was living in New Haven, Connecticut. I mean, what good comes out of Connecticut? Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, okay, so, <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> so he fell into this theology that believed that we are not responsible for Adam's sin. In other words, we are sinners because we sin. He did not believe we sin because we are sinners. So everyone understand the difference between those two things? So you're not a sinner until you begin to sin. And as you sin, you realize, oh, I've been sinning, I am a sinner because I've been doing those sins. That is an anti-covenantal view. Um, a covenantal view is to understand Romans 5, as it is written, that because of Adam, we all sinned. This is in the context of Adam, which means in Adam, we actually sin in Adam. Because the world actually exists this way. That God set it up that we understand and can live in this world through representation. And there's no other way to live in this world. 
We have to live in this world through representation, and Scripture is being very clear about how representation works. Our representation in Adam is so real that when Adam sinned, so did we, and that we are just as guilty as Adam for that sin. And we are so responsible, it's so real, that it will send us to hell because that is how God made humans to work. We were not made to be independent, autonomous humans. It's impossible to live autonomously. God made us that way when he decided that we would be made first as babies. Right? Babies cannot live autonomously. So what you find is every, and this is something kind of interesting, every philosopher wrestles over this. That babies have to be taught everything. This is something John Locke had to deal with. It's something all the way over to Martin Heidegger. These people have to deal with the idea that you are born dependent. And those that represent you have to bring you into this world to help you understand it. And you are fully reliant on those that represent you, which are your parents or whoever raises you. And if you are born into a family that are atheists, and you, because of that influence, become an atheist, you are not less responsible for your atheism. Does that make sense? That is how God made the world. Everything is based on representation all the way down to how you think about things. And I think that... uh, Chuck would appreciate this, and Timothy maybe, and uh, uh, the fact that humans have to think in what we call models. They represent the real world, but they're not the real world. So one plus one equaling two isn't the real world, but it's a model that we use to try and understand the real world. Make sense? uh, Your science books that help you understand what a cell looks like. Uh, Cells don't really look like that. We really don't know what the inside of a cell really looks like, but we have some ideas, and so we make some drawings, and we have a model for you to look at. It's not the real world. It's a piece of paper with ink on it. But it helps you understand the world. Finance works that way with uh, understanding the world, In finance, finance is a good model to understand how people are thinking and what they invest in to understand what they value. All these things are the way God made our minds, and those models help us understand the world. And I'll tell you this, we're absolutely responsible for our models. No one goes to hell and say, oh, but wait, I had the wrong model. If I had the right model, I would know better, and so God needs to have mercy on me. We are responsible, absolutely, even within representation. Just like God said in Romans chapter 5, that this representation of Adam makes us absolutely responsible in the same way that many of us would like to believe 
that Christ's representation for us is real? Is Christ's representation for us real? That our sins really go on him and his good goes on our account. Is that real? I mean, we seem to really be accepting of the whole idea of Christ representing us, our sin going on his account, his good works going on our account, and we seem fine with that, and we think, yeah, that makes sense, that's, yeah, that's real. But then it's hard for us to understand how it is that Adam's account became our account, and that that's real, and that we're absolutely responsible for it. And so that brings us, you know, the first two are pretty easily understood. We know about the sin and Eve being seduced by Satan, and if I can put it this way, Adam being seduced by his wife. And I'm not saying that she was, I know it sounds bad, but it doesn't say that uh, Adam was, um, was, thinking in terms of what Satan was saying. That was a conversation that they particularly tied Eve, but it does say Adam took the fruit from Eve. And what I see is a man that forfeited his leadership to Satan and left his wife vulnerable to eat the food and sinned. And let me say this, men, isn't that our constant condition in our marriages? Where we constantly leave our wives open for attack while we huddle down hoping for her, uh, hoping for her uh, acceptance, hoping for her happiness, hoping for her to be pleased with us. And we covet that more than we covet her protection. And so what we see is that all mankind sinned through Adam. And in this sin, Adam fell, both soul and body. And in number three, we fell in the same way through ordinary generation. And number four, from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede uh, all actual transgressions. Precede, okay? What's it saying there? This original corruption that we have in Adam, and we're utterly indisposed to it, we're disabled by it, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to evil comes before what? What does it say? All actual transgressions. Before I can leave the womb and do either good or evil, I'm already what? Evil. Right? If you were to go back to 1945, 
or if I can say 1939, and you meet Hitler, and you're standing there, and maybe you're Jewish. You're standing there, and he's looking at you, and he has done neither good nor evil towards you yet. <laughs> is he still evil? Yeah, he's still evil. That's us. That is our condition. We are not sinners because we sin. We, are, we sin because we are already inclined. We're already sinners. And so um, let me show you, and, I'm, and I know I beat this drum way too often, but let me beat that drum one more time. Lots of dents in it. Uh, if you look at Romans going back a little bit, you have to understand that Paul's writing to the Romans and chapter 5 comes along to have to back up what he just said in chapter 1. Chapter 1 is pretty hard to swallow. Chapter 1 is saying, starting in verse 18, that God's wrath has been revealed against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They're truth suppressors. And this is what's weird. What are they suppressing? They're suppressing what they already know about God, all of his attributes. They already know all that. They know who the right God is. They know all these things, and they suppress, suppress, suppress. In fact, this is so bad that they are without excuse. No one goes to hell with, a, with an excuse. They're already suppressors. They start their existence, and their thinking as suppressing the truth. For even, and, and it goes on that even though they knew God and they knew, all the, and, and they knew who he was, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. And this is what happens when you don't honor God or give thanks. You become futile in your speculations and your foolish heart becomes darkened. Even though you profess to be wise, you become a fool. And you exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for images that are corruptible. Like things that are created. That's what happens to you. This, de this degenerates your mind to the point where you are capable of the following things. If you're not acknowledging God, this is what happens. You are given over to, to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So you're given over. When you're given over, what are you already? One who does not give thanks or honor God. You're one who's already disposed to evil. You're one that's already one that thinks evil thoughts only. You are a suppressor, and these are the things you become capable of. Being filled with unrighteousness and wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murderer, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, disobedient to parents, without understanding, 
untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those that practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those that practice them. So does everyone do all of those things? No. But those are the fruits you become capable of. And all that stems from the worst possible thing which you can do and be, which is one that does not give honor and thanks to God. That's what it all is rooted in. And you don't give honor and thanks to God because your unrighteousness is suppressing the truth of his very existence. So this original corruption, okay, all comes with us because we are in covenant with Adam. Your identity is linked to that which you are in covenant with, and you only have two choices in this world. What are the two choices that you can be in covenant with? In covenant with Adam or in covenant with Christ, right? Those are the only representatives we are able to have. Romans 5 is very clear about that. And so this original corruption is because of our covenant link with Adam. Yes. Yes. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. It is the it is the the sweet talk of Satan in the ear that has gotten Christians to believe that evolution is compatible with scripture. I really believe that. And I say that as one who went to a seminary that's very conservative, but I don't know very many of the men that teach there that are six-day creationists. And I'm not saying you're going to hell if you're not a six-day creationist, but I am saying this. If you really understand what it means to try and swallow the uh, theistic evolution pill, you have to try and account for the fact that Moses is writing to a group of people 
that now have to understand, you know, and this was the first day, and this was the second day as not meaning anything like what they understand day to mean, which is insane to me. Secondly, you have to decide how you're going to keep the Bible from turning into myth, which is what Peter Enns decided to just accept. Peter Enns was a, was a professor at Westminster that got kicked out, should have been kicked out earlier and should have been kicked out with more pomp and circumstance, but whatever. Um, but he got kicked out because what he was saying was the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of Genesis, because I doubt he believed it was Moses, the writers of Genesis to accept or to believe in a myth so that people would understand something about creation, but it was a myth. Now, the writers didn't know it was a myth, but the Holy Spirit did, and the Holy Spirit actually inspired him to write a myth. That's his book. Uh, if you ever want to read um, Peter Enns. Um, and, and so then, what does it mean? What does it mean when God created Adam? Who's the first Adam? I don't know, some guy, I guess God decided everything is an animal until he decided to give it a soul, whatever that means. Um, why weren't Neanderthals worthy of redemption? Uh, what did they do, just disappear? I mean, it's just, there's so many terrible questions. And if you, if you still think, um, oh, what's his name? William Lane Craig is worthy of listening to. Uh, ask him about what he thinks of the creation account. How ridiculous he thinks that, that we actually believe God collected a bunch of dust and then breathed in its nose and then it became a man. He thinks that's ridiculous. Um, and so then my question to him is, well, who was Adam? And if you want to hear ridiculous, listen to a theistic evolutionist say where Adam came from. It's a lot weirder than God creating out of dust. Uh, it becomes so convoluted and so stupid but they're so afraid of someone calling them stupid for believing in six-day creation that in their own ignorance they become fools. And so you're right. If we don't know who the first Adam is, then what's the second Adam even mean? And what we, what we see is a lot of people that are very interested in accommodating um, theories so that we don't look silly. And 1 Corinthians, quite clear, you're always going to look silly. If you're doing it right, people are going to be making fun of you. And I can also tell you this, um, just as a side note, uh, Dawkins, uh, what's his first name? Richard, of course. Richard Dawkins uh, will not debate with a Christian unless he believes in evolution because he thinks anyone that believes in a young earth isn't worthy to, to debate with, because they're just too stupid. So first of all, think about all the Christians that Dawkins has debated. And I would ask you this, do you think that any of those Christians earned any respect from Dawkins because they gave in to the evolutionary idea? Just listen to one of those debates. You will not hear respect. <laughs> Uh, every time a liberal tries to condescend and become something that the, liberal, that the world wants them to become, 
it never pays off. They're still looking like fools to the world. Um, I mean, and it doesn't matter. I mean, I saw the preview to, I don't even know what the movie is, but I saw this preview to a movie where these guys go to this, you know, wedding and they're at some church and they're like, oh, what religion is this? Oh, I don't know. Uh, they named, I think, something. And they go, oh, brother. And then they named something really, really liberal. I think it was Anglican. No, uh, what's the other one? Episcopal. Like, oh, they're Episcopals. Like, oh, whatever. And they're like making fun of Episcopals. I mean, if anybody has given into the world and said, you know, we'll do anything for you to come. I mean, LGBTQ, we'll do it. Whatever you need. Uh, you don't really want to believe in Jesus? Okay, we'll work that out. Uh, whatever it is, the Episcopals have done it to try and get the world to like them. And the world still rolls their eyes at these people. Because in trying to be sophisticated, they become fools. It's easier just to be orthodox and be made fun of. <laughs> okay, good, yeah. So, in Article 5, we see that this corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. We still have an old man in us. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions, uh, motions thereof are truly and properly sin. So it doesn't mean just because you are a Christian that you no longer sin. This is bad news for the Methodists, right? So some, you know, the Methodist church believes that you can eventually become uh, uh, sinless and uncorrupted. Uh, now there is a caveat to that. They believe that you uh, can become sinless of the sins that you're aware of. So if you sin and you're like, you weren't aware that you were sinning, then it doesn't count as a sin. So you're still sinless. Uh, I got this from an ex-Methodist who's probably one of the smartest people I ever met. And so I trust uh, his accounts. But he, uh, he even said, um, he gives line by line in their, in their liturgy where you can find these things that they, you know, you can become this sinless person of the sins you're aware of. And this is saying, nope, it's still sin. It's properly sin, understood as sin. All right, and number six. Every sin, both original, that's your nature, and actual, those are the actual things you're participating in, being a transgression of the righteous law of God and, contra and contrary thereunto, doth in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and curse of the law, and so made subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. I remember hearing one of the guys uh, from the uh, Revoice movement. He was on a, uh, one of those Reformed uh, podcasts or something, and he made the comment that sin is sin only when sin is an actual event. Um, until you actually act on it, it's not sin. So here's a guy that claimed to be in the PCA. Last I heard, they're still 
claiming to be reformed. This idea that you're born into a nature of sin where you're leaning towards evil all the time, but sin isn't sin until you actually commit it? Well, that's a Catholic idea. It's the very thing Martin Luther was pounding on those doors about. That there's something about us that sin is not a stain that becomes an event. Sin is in us and in our nature. And I think what he was trying to get at was the same-sex attraction, as long as it's not acted upon, is not sin. And that violates everything we just read. Every sin, both original and actual, being a transgression, being a transgression in the righteous law of God and contrary to that law, does in its own nature being guilt upon the sinner, whereby we are bound by you know, bound over to the wrath of God. We are subject to death, the miseries spiritual, temporal, and eternal. This is something, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, um, something that was said when I was at Bob Jones, our, uh, Bob Jones III used to say this, he would say, the most sobering reality in the world today is, and then the students would say, that people are dying and going to hell today. And I think that uh, should be sobering to us that the fall has affected everyone in a real way, not a symbolic way. That God is not unjust by sending people to hell because of the nature that was bestowed upon them. In the same way, he is not unjust in letting people into heaven because of the nature that was bestowed upon them. This is how God made us to be. It's how we have to start thinking if we're going to think in a way that's in the real world that God has made us. And why not, uh, it, we won't always be applauded by people in the, on either side of political parties in what we decide to do. There are going to be times where Republicans won't like us. There are going to be times where we're going to have to say things that Republicans won't like, like, for instance, even if a woman is raped or in the case of incest, you still don't murder that baby. They may not like that. But things like that needs to be said by us because we're not trying to learn how to be good Republicans for eternity. We're trying to learn how to be Christ-like and always striving for that all the way through eternity. So let us be good covenantal thinkers as we are covenantal beings. If you have any questions, let's come see me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time you've given us to think on these things. We thank you for faithful men who have tried their best to, uh, to be clear about what your word is saying so that we do not uh, steer to the left or to the right. But in agreement with your word, we hold together and stand together for the sake of your Son. Lord, we pray that you would... Uh, prepare our hearts for today as we come before your table. Lord, let us think on uh, the obedience of your Son, both in life and in death, and how glorious his resurrection is. Lord, we pray for these things in your Son's name. Amen.